This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show. We're joined by Ben Dominich. He is the publisher of The Federalist. You can read more on thefederalist.com. Ben, quite a morning. Good to have you. Good to be with you, Buck. Uh, quite a morning indeed. What what a, an epic historical day to be talking to you. Uh, and I just have to warn you that uh, because of my... Uh, work last night on uh, on CBS. Uh, I'm talking to you with about two hours worth of sleep. So it, forgive me if I uh, am a little bit uh, un, uh, under the weather. Let's say today when it comes to, to energy. But wow, what a what an evening! What a what a, a, a process to see play out, and it really did astound uh, just about everybody who's been working in, in professional punditry and and uh, analysis over the course of the past several decades uh to see something as unheard of as this happen in the modern era how do you in, in your estimation given what we, we now have some data to go along with the conclusion how did this happen so i think this happened for a couple of reasons but, but but let me just start with this because i think it's the biggest reason and it's one that and people really are not talking about uh, you're going to hear a lot of things about the hidden Trump vote. You're going to hear a lot of things about people not talking to to exit poll uh, viewers and things like that. That's a dynamic that, that certainly is real, and it tells us why the exit polls were wrong. But I, but I think the actual overall dynamic is simply this. People were not excited to vote for Hillary Clinton. The Barack Obama coalition of young voters, of, of, college, uh, of college-educated single women, of African Americans really was not as excited about going out to vote for Hillary Clinton uh, as uh, as they were for Barack Obama, and because of that, she's going to end up with vote totals that significantly lag him by millions of voters all across the country. And at the same time, Donald Trump matched or came or is going to come close to matching the vote totals uh, that Mitt Romney had uh, in 2012 which this time around were enough to put him into victory. Uh, what it really proved, I think, overall, was that the Democratic ground, uh, get-out-the-vote effort, this uh, ground game that we heard so much about, this machine that the Democrats said they could just flip the switch on and get these same people out to vote, that just wasn't the, tr- that just wasn't the truth. It wasn't the case. And they were unable to get the kind of people to go out and support Hillary Clinton uh, that you might have seen. So you'll hear things in the in the media about, oh, this is uh, this was hidden white voters who are who are racist and resentful. That's not true. Or you're going to hear things like James Comey, you know, resolved, you know, he's the he's the big reason this you know happened one way or the other. Guess what? James Comey's uh, announcement in the, the closing weeks of the campaign is not the sort of thing that would keep six million. It looks like Obama voters from 2012 staying home, sitting on their hands, or casting votes 
for third-party candidates. Hillary Clinton just was not popular with them, uh, and even her vaunted ground game could not overcome that. It seems like the Democrats had a bit of hubris going on here, I mean, in part because of all the money and, and the support from the media and, and the, the echo chamber effect that that creates. But Obama was a once-in-a-generation political candidate for them. Uh, they when, Now when you look at this, it sort of changed, changes, I think, the perception of how Democrats at, at the national level uh, for the presidential election, how they do. I mean, we had Bill Clinton, didn't even win half the vote, right? I mean, didn't even win a, 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 a plural or a, um, more than half the vote. And now you have uh, Donald Trump flipping states from blue to red that were considered to be relatively safe. Uh, it was really Obama that got them through the last two elections that they won. It wasn't the Democratic Party is this unstoppable uh, machine that, that can't be broken. Think about the elections in 2010, in 2014, and in 2016, when Barack Obama's name was not at the top of the ballot. And you see what happens, which is basically, if it actually sort of says Obama was a better candidate than maybe we even gave him credit for at the time, because it shows what happens when Democrats have to deal with a reality where he's not there. And it also shows, frankly, you know, the, the fact is that it's, it's harder to motivate people to get out and support a candidate if they just plain don't like them, if they have serious problems and questions with them. There were, there were so many voters, I think, across the country who looked at Hillary Clinton over the past several months and had just a very fragile view of her as, as someone who uh, would not provide strong leadership, uh, who would not provide change, who was a candidate of the status quo and not really a very pleasant one uh, at the same time. And I think all of that really uh, led to a situation where it wasn't just you know, the, uh, you know, a problem for her to try to sell this temperament message uh, to her voters as a motivating factor. Uh, it also was a situation where every single time she tried to gain a little bit of momentum in one way or another, something new would come out to remind people of her, uh, of her scandals, of her incompetence, of the problems that she had as a candidate. And I think that that all you know, served to, to lead us to this situation where it wasn't just her that failed. It was Republicans across the country who uh, didn't, you know, didn't just succeed, but succeeded in, in situations that were astounding. You know, you had the, uh, uh, you know, situation where someone like Evan Bayh, recruited to run in Indiana, you know, gets completely clobbered by uh, Todd Young for that Senate race. You have Russ Feingold brought out of retirement to run in Wisconsin. No one thought that Ron Johnson could beat him as, as recently as just a few weeks ago, uh, and he beats him handily. This is a situation where uh, where voters across the country uh, actually were depressed by Hillary Clinton being at the top of the ticket. I think she's going to go down as one of the worst presidential candidates of all time uh, because she really did have every advantage in the normal political playbook in her corner. She had the media in her corner. She had the money in her corner. She had the organization in her corner. And she still turned in this kind of, of terrible result uh, that, uh, that looks to be uh, the worst thing that people have seen since Dukakis. And when we look at the, the way that this uh, ended up happening, I heard people talking about the sort of Rust Belt strategy and how Trump was going to, for, for stretching back all the way into the earlier days of the primary on the GOP side, that Trump would win working class white voters, that they would be the key, and that the Democratic Party had sort of left them behind, and with their near open borders uh, position and their uh, their sort of constant bowing to uh, multiculturalism and this sort of, you know, browbeating uh, of America or America mm -hmm. abroad and in some ways America at home, that the white working class was going to be the vote that made the difference. It seems from all of the all of the uh, exit polling I've seen so far, 
It seemed as though that was true. And that, that very early analysis of how Trump could actually win, uh, apart from the issue of Hillary's uh, depressing candidacy, was accurate. There were white working class voters who went out for Trump, and they went out for him in, in, in enormous numbers. I mean, percentage wise. Yeah. So, Buck, you know, last night I, I went to the CBS studios here in New York, and, and we went into the we crammed into a, a back conference room where the head of polling uh, for CBS sat down and gave a whole crew of people the the outline of what the exit polls were saying. Now, we know now that the exit polls were wrong in, in a number of respects, that they, they underestimated Trump's support, they overestimated her support. But one of the things that was very telling uh, from that initial data that they gave to us where, uh, and, and frankly, they they have a very responsible polling team. They're very cautious about things. They described it as a tight race, a very close race, one that could go either way based on what was going to happen in the in the evenings across the country. But there were two significant factors that stood out to me. Number one, she was winning within these uh, early uh, exit polls about 65% of the Hispanic vote. Now, that may sound like a big number, but as you know, Buck, Mitt Romney won only 27% of the Hispanic vote. So that actually put Trump in a position where he was overperforming Romney. And and indeed, it looks this morning as if he did overperform Romney among the Hispanic vote, which, of course, was shocking to uh, a number of people or should have been. The other factor that was very interesting in Rust Belt states, particularly in Michigan and in Ohio, your early exit polls showed that while uh, Barack Obama won union voters, union members, by uh, more than 60 points in, in both states, uh, keeping in mind that in 2012 this was in the aftermath of the auto bailouts and everything else, uh, this essentially the, the union vote in both states was statistically even. And that is a warning sign. It's a sign of, of what happens when you take a coalition that had as a portion of it, you know, however you estimate it, a fifth or, or a fourth of it, uh, made up of these white working class union members, voters who were basically appealed to based on economic interests, uh, based on, uh, you know, agreement with them on issues like, like trade, where, uh, where, uh, Donald Trump has a less conservative position. Those voters, uh, have been cut off from the Obama coalition. They are no longer, they were no longer necessary for him. And so I think you did have a phenomenon where there were a lot of people who might have voted for Obama in 2008. Over John McCain, who over the course of the next eight years became increasingly depressed with what they saw from the government. And when Donald Trump came along, they viewed him as their champion, as their tribune. Uh, and that's one of the biggest reasons that he was able to have such an effective response strategy. Now, obviously a great night for the GOP overall, too, maintaining control of the Senate. Uh, it is a, a relatively unobstructed pathway to implementing an agenda for a Trump presidency now, assuming that he follows through on promises and, and the Congress uh, goes along. How do you think we're going to do on that issue of, of party unity? Do you think everybody's kind of uh, everyone's going to realize that this is a, a once in a generation opportunity to get a lot of things done that people of all different kinds within the Republican Party would like to see done? There, there's a couple of things that I think are going to happen very quickly, and one of those, uh, you know, biggest things is going to be uh, that Trump is not just going to be picking a cabinet over the course of the next couple of months. He's also going to be picking a Supreme Court nominee. I think that Supreme Court nominee and the way that that process plays out will tell us a lot about the approach uh, that the Congress is going to have, both the Democrats and the Senate, uh, and uh, and the Republicans generally to Donald Trump. Number, you know, the big question is, does he stand by his promises that he made to the federal society, to other key individuals, to uh, to the American people about who he was going to pick 
as that Supreme Court nominee, you remember uh, that in his updated list of, of people that he rolled out prior to Ted Cruz's uh, endorsement of him, uh, at the top of that list was Senator Mike Lee from Utah, obviously a prominent conservative uh, and someone who uh, a lot of people would like to see on the court. Does he nominate someone like that? Does he go in a different direction? Does he try to make some kind of peace with Democrats? Or is this a situation where they, they slam one through? I think that's going to be a critical choice on his on his part. And I think that the choices for his cabinet will be telling as well on how the Republicans respond to them, particularly if they contain some people who are perhaps off the beaten path ideologically. I do think that one of the biggest questions going forward is how does Donald Trump work with people who he has had contentious relationships with in the past? Obviously, there was a revenge factor. If Donald Trump had lost, there were all these rumors and murmurings that he was going to start up super PACs to go after people like Paul Ryan, to go after people uh, you know, who, who he viewed as, as not supporting him, Jeff Flake and others, Ben Sass. Uh, how does he work with those people now, considering that many of them represent the next generation of, of leadership within the Republican coalition? I'll be particularly interested to see how he works or doesn't work with Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is obviously somebody who has, you know, is in a weaker position now than he was perhaps, you know, six months ago. As someone who is no longer viewed as necessarily, you know, a, a leader of the conservative movement. What is the fight that he picks? Does he keep his head down? You know, is he is is there some kind of peace that is made? The other, and that's a you know a real question about whether Trump is going to be able to work alongside a lot of these uh, Republican figures. I don't know about you, Buck, but when I saw him come out to give that uh, that speech at the end of the evening. Um, where where he you know was was embracing uh, the idea of being president for the first time in public, what I actually saw in his face was was a degree of of I don't want to say dread, but let's just say an awareness of the of the weight that he is about to put on himself, uh, and an awakening to the idea that wow I really am going to be president. We really are doing this, uh, and I think that that is you know that's a moment that a lot of people have. I mean Barack Obama kind of displayed that a little bit in two thousand and eight. And I think responding to that, how he responds to that, is something that we can't really know. Is he going to turn more to his advisors? Who is he going to look to as being you know, sort of closest to him? Is he going to listen to people with whom he had significant disagreements, but who can also be of significant help to him in this role? Those are all open questions and not ones that we're going to really know the answer to until he's had a couple months to prove I know you're exhausted, Ben. I know you're up until the, the wee hours. I just want to ask you for a, a quick a quick response to this one, then we'll let you, we'll let you go and, and get some sleep or do whatever. I'm sure you've got hits all day. Uh, cautiously optimistic, hopeful, uh, wait and see. Where are you on a Trump presidency now? You know, I, I mean, I'm in kind of a wait and see uh, mode when it comes to the actual policies that he has, because I think those are still in the large uh, venue fairly vague outside of the issues of tax and, and immigration policy. But here's the area that I'm most hopeful uh, for, um, whether you're a Trump supporter or not. What, we, what I hope we actually see here is a return to a form of government where the Congress has the ability to assert itself. Under Obama, we've seen an unprecedented degree of executive rule where the Congress really had no role in terms of its uh, ability to, to hedge against the executive or to make changes. I think that if there's one thing that Donald Trump is, uh, has shown a willingness to do, it's to upend systems and to, and to try to make them work uh, better. And I think that that's going to lead him to hopefully uh, fire a lot of people who are currently in the American bureaucracy, fire, clean out a lot of agencies, get rid of a lot of people who've been uh, putting in bad, bad regulatory uh, policy over the course of decades under Republican and Democratic presidents and really drain the swamp to a degree uh, that he has promised the American people. I'm optimistic about that because I don't think 
he feels any need to abide by the political norms that we've had in this country. And that's something that I think uh, people who favor limited government should be fans of. Ben Dominich is the publisher of The Federalist. You can go read more at thefederalist.com and certainly give Ben a follow on Twitter if you're not already doing so. Ben, thank you for making the time. I know you're exhausted, but uh, great to speak with you. Great stuff as always, and we'll talk to you soon. Great to talk to you, Buck. Take care. The Buck Sexton Show. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply.